0: Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to the Daily Sun Up. The Daily Sun Up podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com ethics. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Today, an interview Colorado Sun political reporters did earlier this month with Governor Jared Polis as part of the Sun's 2024 legislative session preview. Before we begin, join the Colorado Sun on January 24th as environmental reporter Michael Booth speaks with experts about the growing revolution of electric vehicles, the mandates and subsidies, the death of big highway building, and more. Join for free by signing up at coloradosun.com events. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. Dr. Stanley Biber, born in 1923, transformed Trinidad into what one publication called the Sex Change Capital of the World. A University of Iowa medical graduate, Biber served in the Korean War before settling in Trinidad in 1954. Initially a general surgeon, his career took a pivotal turn in 1969 when a social worker requested sex reassignment surgery. Biber, leveraging his reconstructive surgery skills, ended up performing over 4,000 sex change operations from 1969 to 2003, averaging about three per week. His work attracted patients from all over the globe, significantly impacting Trinidad's economy and hospital finances. Despite mixed local sentiments, Biber's legacy persisted until he passed away in 2006. Before we continue, a special thank you to all of our Colorado Sun members listening. It's thanks to you that The Sun continues to bring trustworthy, independent journalism to readers and listeners across our state. If you're not yet a member and want to join us, visit coloradosun.com join to sign up. While you're there, check out our member e-newsletters like Colorado Sunday, The Temperature, and more. Together, we'll keep Colorado informed in 2024. Next, our feature story.
1: So you've talked a big game on housing, obviously last year, you know, the the measure that you put forth didn't make it across, across the finish line and you've kind of telegraphed that, yeah, some of these things are going to come back, but I guess we haven't gotten too many details on exactly what you plan to bring in the 24 session or or what you plan to support. So I'm curious if you can kind of provide us with some details as as we kind of barrel toward this thing.
2: I I think you're going to see a number of uh, bills that will reduce the cost of housing. Our, our, uh, Calculus is simple. If something reduces the cost of housing, we're for it. If it increases costs for rent or purchase, we are very, very skeptical, uh, and and will generally uh, be be opposing those efforts. So, so there's a lot of things to do in that realm. Uh, many of them have been talked about for years, but I mean, you know, reducing red tape, making it easier to build, uh, transit plan communities. I, I think, uh, in addition to the cost of living from housing, people are looking, you know, the average Colorado spends about $1,800 on gas for commuting, for instance. So can people live closer to jobs? Can there be better public transit? Uh, can there be opportunities to live in transit communities? So really looking in holistic a way as possible on how, as we grow as a state, uh, we don't continue to become less affordable, but in fact can become more affordable. And, and looking at all those cost drivers, starting with rent and mortgage, but of course that means, uh, you know, cars, gas. Uh, distances traveled. We want people to be able to live closer to work. I mean, being able to have go to soccer games with your kid and after school events is priceless at the end of the day. And too many people are stuck in rush hour commute and and not able to do those things they love simply because they can't afford to live close to their jobs.
1: So last year's bill got hung up in large part because of this idea that it would have imposed some zoning regulations on local governments or any of the bills that that are going to come out of You know, the Democratic caucuses or your office this year, are they going to do anything like that with zoning regulations?
2: Well, again, I think what you see um, Democrats and Republicans doing in many states, and similar efforts were, of course, led by Republicans in Republican majority states with Montana, where they were able to uh, pass reforms that really lean into private property rights. So, uh, you know, if it's your property and your home, you, you have certain rights associated with that. And we want to make sure those aren't trampled upon by government and that you're able to use those rights, whether it's, uh, you know, building, you know, in an area that allows up to three stories, going from two to three stories, running out of room, accessory dwelling units, whatever it is. Uh, I think that defending property rights is a basic Colorado value. And too often those property rights are infringed upon by government.
1: So I guess I'll take that as a yes, but but do you have any sense of what some of those um, you know, impositions or I mean, local governments are obviously going to see this is yeah. Like- I mean,
2: again, it, it's simple. Any anything that makes it lower cost, quicker, easier to build housing, we're for. So, I mean, you, you know, there's many things that can do that. Anything that makes it slower or more expensive to build housing, we are very skeptical about. Uh, opposed, uh, and, and I don't think you're going to see one bill, Jesse, if that's what you're asking. I think you're going to see you know, 15 or 20 ideas from Republicans and Democrats and maybe 10 are good and five are bad, but whatever it is, uh, we'll certainly help analyze those and support the ones that reduce the cost of housing, reduce red tape, reduce bureaucracy, lean into personal property rights, a basic you know, value of mine as a proud capitalist that believes in private property. Uh, so that's kind of what we will be be focused on this session. And you'll hear more about it, of course, in the state of the state. Um, again, I, I'm clear that housing is the biggest expense people experience in Colorado. So you can fully expect that the biggest part of our work to save people money will be about housing. And that just flows out of the fact that rent or mortgage is simply the basic, biggest expense that most Coloradans have.
1: So I know there's been talk about accessory dwelling units, and that's something you're really excited about. Senate President Steve Fenberg had said that there was going to be potentially some form of incentive toward helping people do that. Do you, can you provide any details about what that policy might look like?
2: You know, again, we love and embrace all those things. I think another key thing is that there is no one silver bullet. It's not like if you do accessory dwelling units, solves colorado's housing crisis and and housing is suddenly affordable but that's a powerful tool we love them they're often called mother-in-law suites casitas but it enables somebody to have another it's great for both i mean you know the owner the homeowner if their lot is big enough they can have an accessory dwelling unit they can rent it out they can get additional income uh and of course those are the most inherently affordable kinds of units what's happened in our state jesse is The most inherently affordable kinds of housing, which tends to be things like accessory dwelling units, but also apartments um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, those kinds of homes have been the least likely to have been built over the last decade. And so while we need housing inventory across the board, and I'm not saying that we don't need more homes. Um, you know, up for the, on the upper end, that's largely taking care of itself. They have been built, but what has been prevented from being built are many starter homes, homes people can buy two three three hundred thousand dollars, start building equity, and if they are put out for rent, obviously a two or three hundred thousand dollar home is going to have a much more affordable rent than a seven or eight hundred thousand dollar home.
1: Okay, so moving on, kind of past um, zoning requirements or zoning changes that you guys might make statewide. Um, you and I have talked about construction defects legislation. Obviously, the, the building industry sees this as kind of being the silver bullet toward, um, uh, you know, more affordable housing. I know you've said it's not the silver bullet, but Democratic leadership, when we talked to them earlier this week, kind of said that it wasn't part of the main housing package. We know that a bill is coming. Are you involved in that? And is that something you know you remain on board with?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm supportive of again anything that reduces housing costs, and and absolutely there's room to do construction uh, defects reform. Again, it is not a silver bullet. None of these are right. You not like you do ADUs and it solves everything. You do construction defects, it solves everything. You do transplant communities. That's why I'm really hopeful there'll be a comprehensive look. We have a tax credit package that's already public that's in our budget document. It's about 120 million. Uh, that helps too. Prop 123 helps. All these things. But um, you you know you don't just you don't just tweak one thing and it solves something. I mean, uh, and so absolutely, we're very supportive of construction defects reform. Uh, we don't want people to somehow think that that would solve it, but that can help uh, impact which units are for rent and which are for purchase. And obviously we all as a basic value, uh, I think Democrats as a whole, believe that people should be able to build equity purchases better. We totally get that some people might not have a down payment, might be saving up, might have to rent for a while, roof over your head is very important. But, but the goal is obviously equity building and ownership. And to extend construction defects stands in the way of that, there's absolutely room. But obviously, we also make sure that the um, ability to build apartments or condos exists in our state, and especially along transit corridors and ways that people can save money with less parking requirements or easy bus or rail access.
1: So obviously, everyone in Colorado can't afford to buy a home. So there are some bills that I know that the Democratic majority plans to bring on rent, one that failed last year. And I'm, I'm hoping you can weigh in on both of these. I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about these specifically, but one would lift the local prohibition on rent control policies. Uh, that one was brought last year. It failed. And then also there's this so, so-called so just evictions bill um, that would set new rules for when someone can be evicted from their home and bar kind of re- retaliatory rent increases. Where do you come down on those two policies?
2: Yeah, as I said, I'm very skeptical of anything that would raise rents and I would, I would put those two in that category. Uh, whenever you, try to add complexity. And again, we haven't been category against it. We did, I think, mediation for some people before they get evicted. But whenever you you change that, you have an upward pressure on rent. Same with rent control. Cities with rent control have the highest rents in the country. Um, you know, And, and so we want to go the other way. We want lower rent. And of course, um, I think that the way we do that is we have, of course, more housing. The reason rent is so high is because demand is so high. Colorado is a great place to live but we've artificially constrained supply and we need to remove some of those constraints on supply uh, and allow, especially the most affordable kind of units. Again, we've talked about some of them, accessory dwelling units, apartments, uh, multiplexes, shared rooms in in people's homes. Um, All of these uh, inherently more affordable kinds of housing would help reduce rents.
1: I'm not an economist. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that your position on rent control a little bit, right? Because I think the rent control policies are often enacted in, in cities and, and counties, right, where the rent is already high to prevent them from getting higher. So how do you see a rent control policy contributing to to high rent?
2: I just look at the evidence. I mean, again, you know, and we're obviously open to some, but the cities that have it have the highest rent. It makes Colorado look, you know, dirt cheap. So uh, and and generally the, you know, reasons for that, if you were asking economists would be it's less of an incentive to build new units if they're going to be rent controlled. So it kind of works the opposite way of what we need, which is more units, because if, you um, you know, builders and and the capital knows that the rent won't be able to go up over time, then uh, they're not going to be built. They're just returns are there. And we have an undersupply already. So it, it only accentuates the undersupply and then pushes up rent prices for the few units that are out there.
1: So obviously, kind of in the housing realm, um, kind of, but also economic realm, too, is, is property taxes. HH failed. Obviously, special session passed uh, during the special session. There was a one-year bill passed, kind on of a one-year relief. Um, I know that there is is a, a a task force now working on a long-term property tax solution. But one thing that, that some folks have talked about is a progressive property tax solution where uh, people with higher-value properties would be charged more and lower-value uh, properties would, would maybe get a bigger break or not be charged quite as much. I wonder if that's something that you'd be supportive of uh, if that came out of the the task force. Well, I,
2: I think what we did in a special session is we absolutely gave a bigger break to lower value property. We, we basically reduced every the taxable portion of every property by $55,000. So if you had a $400,000 home, you're going to be paying taxes on $345,000 of that $400,000 home. If you have a $2 million home, you're paying taxes on 1. you know, 9 uh uh 1.945. So I mean the tax break it was built that way. There was a slight rate reduction as well. I absolutely think rate reductions have got to be part of it. But we're very open to uh, whether they continue that fifty-five thousand, or 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 you know, make it sixty or seventy thousand, whatever it is. I I think knocking that dollar value off the home helps as long as it's accompanied by a rate reduction. I think you'll see most of us kind of waiting to see what this uh, what the bipartisan commission does, Jesse and uh you know i i know they're just starting their work and i think they will be coming out in march and uh i'll be happy to you know analyze it and and take a look at what they have to say
1: yeah i mean i guess i know that the legislature has limited tools in terms of property taxes right and if they want to make it progressive one of the ways to do it is to do those um, value reductions or value exemptions i don't know if you can legally set rates for different value homes but i guess i mean do you envision a long-term property tax solution really being passed by the legislature it seems like it would have to be be something that would go to voters in 2024 yeah
2: i mean i don't think we constrained. i don't think we can that bipartisan bipartisan commission one way or the other i mean i think that they can look at what the legislature can do but um if there's something the legislature wants to put in the ballot we're happy to look at that too um i'm for a lower rate to be clear i mean if they want to do a little bit of dollars off we're fine with that but we fought for the lower rate we really want a lower rate uh, obviously, homes that are $2 million pay a lot more property taxes than homes that are $500,000. So um, I, I think the the, the problem is uh, the values went up um, a lot more than ever before. It's not necessarily a problem we're likely to have again in, with the next assessment period. It's kind of a a, a bit of an a, a unfortunate timing with the repeal of Gallagher and then the biggest – Two year increase, I think, in Colorado history, is an average of 40%. I think we got that 40% increase down to about an 18% increase over the two year period, which still outpaced inflation, which maybe was around 12%, but it's a lot closer. So I'm for any way that we can reduce property taxes. I think uh, a rate cut has got to be part of it, but uh, we're not saying that needs to be the whole thing.
1: All right. Last housing centric question for you and and it's a a topic that i know is dear to both of our hearts so one more
2: thing there was another thing in hh that i can point out and i don't know what and i can't i don't know what the commission's doing but obviously i supported hh as a whole and uh one of the things that was in it was um it gave additional breaks to owner occupied and so um just as there's a home mortgage interest reduction federally owner occupied you don't you don't get that on additional uh, that I, I don't know if the commission is considering that, but that was something that, you know, w- was in HH, where if you live there, it's a lower rate.
1: Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that with Senator Hansen when he jumps on in the next segment. Um, and, and last housing related question here. Uh, over the summer, the Colorado Sun did an investigation looking at HOA fore- foreclosures. And afterward, you and a group of Democratic lawmakers vowed to take more action to prevent people from losing their homes at auction because they you know have missed payments or fines um what updates can you provide on the work in this arena you guys promised big change but I, I just haven't heard too much about what what might be coming this session
2: yeah i mean again you know you're asking about uh bills we haven't seen yet jesse so obviously um you know i i think there likely will be bills in that area it's a general direction we support i mean these you know it's and we already we, to be clear we've already done some reforms in this area but it's you know a, absurd um if you know for not cutting your lawn you know your home is seized or something like that i mean there's these horror stories that exist uh and you know if you're outside of an hoa a city isn't going to seize your home over not cutting your your, your lawn again you'll, you might be subject to some kind of civil penalty and uh and it might hurt your credit record but they're not going to they're not going to seize your home so hoas should be looked at similarly to kind of municipal creditors for homes that are outside of hoas and right now some of them are a lot more aggressive
1: um, a recent press conference, I kind of asked you about this, but there is some talk about a new, some new transportation funding this year, and that might potentially include, include a new funding source, whether that's a fee or uh, some kind of tax increase. Um, and this would be specifically to boost transit, which I know is, is important to you as part of the kind of overall housing conversation. So would you be open to you know a new funding mechanism, whether it be a fee or some kind of tax increase to kind of make that transit reality that, that you're really hoping for? Um, come true and and i would say this would be probably separate from the front range rail which i know is a whole nother near and dear
2: yeah i mean i mean separate but interrelated i mean front range rail we view as a it's a kind of transit right so this is and and, and i mean there's there's and there's mountain rail front range rail interconnectivity of light rail buses uh there's a lot to that piece i mean the way that i look at it is the way i look at anything does it net save people money so i mean again you look at that cost of gas eighteen hundred dollars a year people are paying average. Um, and, and actually it might be 1600 now, cause that was calculated when gas was, you know, $3. We have one of the lowest, you know, gas costs in the country. It's great. We're like two sixty some a gallon. Now it's a little bit lower than Denver metro area. Uh, but, uh, again, it's still, you know, people are spending a lot of money on commuting. So if there's a way to save people money in there, uh, then we're all for it. I mean, if a family of four can thrive and be excited and only have one car instead of two, I mean, that can save that family thousands of dollars a year. If they're able to get where they want to go and that's money they that can go into college savings retirement family vacations college uh, all of those great things that people want to spend it on uh not just on gas so we, we really look at that and, and want to weigh carefully to make sure that any proposal would save people money but in that transit space jesse i i absolutely think there is the opportunity to save people money with more and better transit
1: okay so let's just game it out right let's just say there's a um a new additional fee on a gallon of gasoline and let's say it goes toward building, you know, better transit connectivity so people maybe wouldn't have to buy um as much gas. I mean, would that count in your mind as being something that would qualify as, as Yeah, a... I mean, I
2: just just show us the numbers, right? I mean, I don't I don't think it'll I don't think it'll be gas. We have uh fees on that. There actually are some fees from gas now that go that can go to multimodal transportation. Um but yeah, I mean again, it's just it's a mathematical thing. It's not a philosophical thing. I'm just gonna look at well, what does it get us, right? Is it Pre-bus fares, are there more buses? Is there light rail? Is there passenger rail? What does it get us where? What are the estimated savings in both time and money from people? What are the costs? And uh, do we have a scenario here where um, you know, net it saves Colorado's time and money? And obviously, time has a dollar value attached to it too. Um, you know, whether it's time, you know, time getting to and from your job. But as I mentioned, I mean time. Not being home with your kids or missing a soccer, kids' a soccer game is priceless. So how can we better help people live closer to where they work and where they want to play, also get where they want to go quicker and easier and at lower cost? And uh, just like roads and highways take capital investment, yes, uh, these things are generally less expensive. I mean, buses uh, uh, and transit are generally less expensive than big highway projects, but uh doesn't mean that they, they, they don't cost anything up front. So you want to look at what that benefit is and, and how much money it saves people.
1: So transportation um, is connected to greenhouse gas emissions. It's, I think, the biggest source of, of greenhouse gas emissions in Colorado. And one of our uh, readers wanted to know that that there was a state analysis that was released in November. My colleague, Mike Booth, wrote about it. And it showed that Colorado, and this was from state officials, said that Colorado would fall short of its 2030 uh, carbon dioxide reduction goals, which would also mean that the state would fall uh, short of its, your 2050 goal. I think it was a campaign promise in your first election of zero emissions by that point. I wonder if we're going to see any specific legislation from your administration this session that that can accelerate or kind of catch us back up and make sure we're we're on track.
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing we need to do, Jesse, is is what we've just talked about around transit, but it also ties into housing. So, I mean, most people don't want to have a 45 minute commute to work each way. I mean, again, if people want to, and they want to have acreage and, and, and got, there's people who do that, God bless them. And they don't mind commuting, you know, an hour and a half a day, 45 minutes each way, but many people who do, and I hear from many wish that they could afford to live closer to uh, where they want to be, where they work. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it it's, it's happened because of the housing crisis. So we could do the transit planning uh, overlay along with more and better transit, along with more affordable housing, uh, it can help us meet our climate goals. And I think that's the biggest challenge we face this session is figuring out the interplay between those so people aren't forced to live so much further from where they work and commute in a single occupancy vehicle as the only way that they can live the lifestyle they want to, they want to live.
1: Does that happen fast enough, though, to kind of get us back on track by 2030,
2: 2050? Uh, well, of course. I mean, um, we we I, and I I don't have the document in front of me, Jesse, but I mean, glasses half full. I actually think we were something like 96% of the way there for 2030. So, I mean, we have made a lot of progress so far, and I I don't have that number in front of me, but I think it was only something like 4 or 5% more. But yeah, I think we can get that extra uh, piece that we need from better planning about where people live, work, how they get places. We're obviously already have the tax credits in place for electric vehicles. By the way, it went live January 1st. It's now uh, 7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles. Uh, encourage people as they as they look to replace their car and uh, many electric vehicles in the 20 and thirty thousand range uh, that can be like twenty percent off. so it's a big deal, lower operating costs uh, and for people who choose to purchase them, uh, we've made uh, many models available in Colorado as well and uh, right now something like uh, thirteen, fourteen percent of vehicles sold are electric in our state. All
1: right. well, you'll have to tell me where you can find a twenty thousand dollar electric vehicle that that would be news to me. I'll um,
2: we'll be I happy to. I, I mean, there are, there are some that are, I, once you add up the federal and state tax credits, there's some that come in even lower than that. So we'll uh, we'll get you the information.
1: All right. Um, I want to talk water. Uh, obviously, there was the commission that, that was formed by the legislature, the Colorado River Drought Task Force. Uh, this didn't come out of that, but it did come out of um, one of the uh, interim committees. There's a proposal in the legislature this year that would prohibit state and local governments, as well as homeowner associations, HOAs, planning or installing new non-functional turf artificial turf or invasive plant species on any commercial institutional or industrial industrial property i know you kind of have a libertarian streak in you and i wonder where you come down in, in, in the government telling people what they can and can't plant plant or you know state government telling local government or just mandating this kind of across the board
2: well we are taking a hard look at what the state does i believe in leading by example so uh, we of course have an executive order in this area. We are reducing our state water footprint. Uh, we uh, have a lot of uh, uh, land and, and operations, and uh, we want to show the way in, in, in reducing uh, the use of, of turf and moving towards Colorado scaping. I also uh, signed a bill last session that prevents uh, HOAs from requiring uh, water-intensive landscaping. Um, they, they, if if residents of HOAs want to do zero scaping, they have to have that option. Um, so, I think you see a lot of exciting things happening in Aurora, uh, also leading the way on new uh, water efficiency codes. Um, it also factors into, frankly, this housing discussion that we're having because. The type of housing that we're envisioning more of is not only more affordable and closer to work, but also far more water efficient than continuing to move further and further out, longer commutes, less water efficiency, less energy efficiency. So uh, water efficiency is very consistent with our goals around making living and uh, housing in Colorado more affordable as well.
1: Okay. In the couple minutes that we have left here, I want to hit a few uh, big topics, um, Tabor refunds. They were flat this year under the bill passed during the special session moving forward. That's not the case. I know that you want an income tax uh, rate reduction when there is a Tabor surplus. But uh, where do you come down on this? The, the Democrats and legislature want to keep the rate flat. Is, is that what's going to happen going forward? Or are you going to continue pushing for an income tax rate cut?
2: Yeah, I mean, we would we would, you know, we need there to be an income tax cut for us to be able to negotiate anything else. That's kind of the starting point is is we want there to be an income tax rate cut. Uh, the Tabor surplus means two things. One, there's a strong economy, uh, which is terrific. Uh, but it also uh, I, I sometimes, you know, tongue in cheek it as a roaring policy economy. But, you know, people like to blame me when things are bad, but they don't always get credit when things are good. But um, the other thing is it means is that we're overtaxed as a state. So our, our tax rates are too high. Whether it's property tax, income tax, sales tax, they all should be lower because uh, we have this huge surplus. So, I mean, you know, and again, if Democrats want to make the case to go to the voters to use some of it for schools or housing, and they've done that successfully with Prop 123 as an example, you put that on the ballot, voters consider it. Um, You know, I've uh, supported some of those in the past. That's fine. But I'm not supportive of there being uh, an enormous surplus. It simply means it's a signal that rates are too high. And the state legislature or the voters, we've had we passed two permanent uh, income tax cuts. I've supported both of them. Uh, widely popular, you know, majorities of Democrats, Republicans, independents all supported uh, the income tax rate reduction to 4.4 percent. It was 4.63 percent when I came in. We've cut it twice. And uh, and, and with regard to the Tabor, it would more likely be a temporary income tax rate cut. But we're for temporary, permanent, whatever uh, can pass the legislature or go through the votes of the vote of the people.
1: Okay. I mean, I've heard you talk about the income tax rate uh, cut a few times, but the legislature keeps making income tax, uh, the, the table refund.
2: Well, we've got it. We've cut it twice by vote of the people. We've cut it twice by vote of the people. Uh, I'm, you know, we can cut it through the legislature or the people, I mean, whoever it's, you know, it just, it needs to be cut. Uh, so obviously our, our preference is always to work with the legislature uh, and, 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 and we're not, you know, greedy in the sense of saying that, oh my gosh, the, by the way, if you cut, if you, if you'd use the entire Tabor surplus and cut income taxes, I think you'd be in the 3.9 range. We'd, we'd actually be below 4%. Uh, but we're, we're happy to take a more modest income tax rate cut, uh, in exchange for, you know, whatever else people want to do with other parts of the surplus, such as a one tier refund mechanism.
1: Okay. Um, and last question here. In 2024, is going to be crowded ballot in terms of ballot measures. Uh, and i wonder where you're going to come down on, on two areas. One is going to be uh, a measure that will enshrine abortion access in the state constitution, lift the state ban on, on government dollars being used to pay for abortions. I, I'm assuming you're supporting that. Is that something you, you plan on campaigning for?
2: Well, Jesse, way too early. We're talking about legislative session, and I haven't seen half these bills. Um, usually what I do is a month or two before the election, I read the blue book, and um, you know, I'm happy to share how I'm voting if I have a strong opinion on things. Um, if things are going through the legislature, if they need my signature, I might see them a little earlier. But no, I, I have not started to think about next November's ballot. Uh, we obviously will be you know, reading a lot of bills this session and focus on that. Of course, I'm pro-choice, always have been. Uh, and and um, you know we'll we'll be happy to look at uh, whatever comes down for November.
1: Okay, and then quickly, you might have the same answer to this, but Ken Theory has put forward this this series of ballot measures that would change the election system in Colorado uh, in terms of uh, open primaries, ranked choice voting, getting rid of um, vacancy committees, and then also making uh, all people gather signatures to get on on the ballot. Where are you at on those concepts? Uh, just in- well, I,
2: you know, I've I've um... I've said positive things about some of those concepts, but again, in terms of any ballot initiatives, I will, uh, you know, look at them a couple, a month or two before the election. Uh, as far as I know, these things aren't even on the ballot, Jesse. So, I mean, I, they're very speculative at this point and, and, you know, things change in the titling board and all of that sort of thing. So I, I uh, don't expect I will be looking at those between now and, you know, June uh, when we, when we figure out, you know, the bills we're going to sign. All
1: right. Well, thank you so much, Governor. I really appreciate it.
0: To watch the whole event, which included interviews with legislative leaders, visit The Sun's YouTube page. You can find a link in the episode notes. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Owning a pet in Colorado is taking an ever bigger bite out of home budgets, and the problem extends across the country. One analysis ranked Colorado 37th in annual expenses for dog ownership at nearly $1,600, including food, pet insurance, veterinarian office visits, and vaccines plus spay-neuter procedures. While precise costs can vary from one zip code to another, virtually all the analysis and surveys done on pet care show that expenses are rising. Visit coloradosun.com to see more of the Sun's High Cost of Colorado series. A pair of sugar beet and corn farmers are taking on the oil and gas industry and the state's biggest utilities over the issue of pipeline safety. Mark and Julie Nigrin have been pushing the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission to pass new safety rules, and now the commission appears poised to do just that. Pollution from a leaking pipeline led to the destruction of the Nigrins home and the loss of most of their belongings, sparking the couple's safety push. The Federal Office of Pipeline Safety said there are more than 45,000 miles of pipelines in Colorado. Nebraska is moving to build a major canal that will take water from the drought-depleted South Platte River on Colorado's northeastern plains and deliver it to new storage reservoirs in western Nebraska. The project elicited controversy when it was announced last year, but the conflict appears to have subsided, at least for now. With $628 million in cash from its state legislature, Nebraska has begun early design work. It's also holding public meetings, outlining potential routes for the canal and reservoirs, and has made at least one land purchase in Colorado. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And The Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. Right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member, starting at $5 per month. And if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our politics newsletter, The Unaffiliated, as well as our outdoors newsletter, The Outsider, and our new health and environment newsletter, The Temperature. All three exclusive newsletters delivered to your inbox every week.